the last time that you were lied to? Do you remember the last time you were lied to? Maybe it was a friend who, who you told them a secret, and they said, don't worry, I'm not going to tell anybody. And then everybody knew your secret. Maybe it was a family member who said, I'm always going to be there for you. And then they weren't. Maybe it was your son who said, I brushed my teeth tonight. But he didn't. Man, lies are everywhere in our culture, aren't they? We all get lied to all the time. Our advertising lies to us. Politicians lie to us. People that we hate lie to us. People we love lie to us. We even many times lie to ourselves. Our lives are just full of deception. And this shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan is the father of lies. That when he lies, he speaks his native language, that there is no truth in him, And we know that we live in a fallen world, and that in this fallen world, Satan, the father of lies, has plenty of influence. And so all of us get lied to quite a bit. The last few weeks, we've been looking at these various underdogs in Scripture, and we've seen that, that each of these underdogs who God used, these people who were so unlikely, these people who seemed so unusable, that God chose and he used them in these massive ways, we've seen how these people each had what seems like a legitimate excuse not to be used by God. We're calling that an underdog excuse. What I really want you to know this morning, and what I want you to see as we go through each of these past few weeks, as we go through this morning and the next two weeks, is that each of their underdog excuses, your underdog excuse, my underdog excuse, is truly just a lie. Maybe it's a lie that somebody else told you. Maybe it's a lie that you believed. I don't know the source of the lie as far as how it got into your head, but the truth is Satan is the father of lies, and he is the source of these excuses. He's the source of these lies. He's the source of these things that we tell ourselves that we believe why God could never use us. First of all, we looked at David, and David, before he became King David, before he became this legendary warrior, he was an overlooked family member. And for him, his underdog excuse was, how could I ever be significant in the kingdom of God when I'm not even significant in my own family? How could I ever be used in a mighty way? And yet God did use him in that great way. Then we looked at Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was a cripple from infancy. He was a cultural throwaway, a castaway, somebody who the culture completely wrote off. And not only that, he was the grandson of the former king, King Saul. And so he should have, by that culture, been put to death. He should have been executed because he was a rival to the throne. And yet, David loved Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, and had covenant with him. And he said, because of your father, Jonathan, I'm going to bless you. And David brought Mephibosheth into his house. This rival, this person he should have been executing, brings him into his house and seats him every single day for the rest of his life at the king's table. We see this underdog used in this massive Massive way. Then last week we looked at Esther, one of my absolute favorites. And we see how Esther is a racial underdog, an ethnic underdog. She's a Jew in the land of the Persians. And despite that, God has favor on her, and he promotes her all the way to the queen of the empire. All of a sudden, things are looking pretty good for Esther. And then five years later, she gets wind of a plot to assassinate and exterminate her people off the face of the earth that the Jews would be wiped out, and Esther faces a hard decision. Is she going to step up and and go and approach the king and risk her life, risk execution by appearing before the king and pleading that her people would be spared? Or is she going to lay low, keep it on the DL, and watch 
as everyone she loves is put to death, but she herself is allowed to live. Well, Esther makes the right decision. She goes before the king, and despite the fact that her underdog excuse was the odds seemed so much against her, she rose above those odds, and God used her to save an entire people. Each of them had an excuse, and I believe that you have an excuse this morning, that I have excuses this morning, reasons why God can't use us, maybe reasons why he can't use us now, maybe reasons why God can't use us in this way, maybe reasons why God can't use us in this person's life, but I want you to see that those underdog excuses are truly just lies from the enemy. One of the interesting things about Satan, the father of lies, is that he's such a liar that oftentimes he'll tell us one lie over here, and later on he'll tell us another lie over here, and these two lies completely contradict each other. For example, one of Satan's favorite lies, one lie that he's been telling for thousands of years, is that you don't need God. He likes to tell people that they don't need God, and sometimes this fleshes itself out in different ways. Sometimes Satan tells us we don't need God in such a way that we don't even need to believe that there is a God. There's many people in our world who have believed that lie. In fact, somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 million people on planet Earth right now believe that there is no God. They bought in to that lie. Sometimes that's not the lie he tells us. Maybe he just tells us that we don't need God because he's trying to keep us from praying. Or he's trying to keep us from opening our Bible. Or he's trying to keep us from opening our mouth. Maybe he's trying to keep us from giving. Maybe he's trying to keep us from going to church. But he's going to tell us, you don't need God in this area, in this aspect, in this part of your life. And he tells us that lie over and over. And maybe if you were to look at your life this morning, you would say, I've kind of believed that I don't need God in this. I believe, God that I, I believe this lie that I don't need God at work. I believe the lie that I don't need God at school. I believed the lie that I don't need God in this part of my life. But what's so interesting about that is when Satan fails to get us to believe that lie, when, when we come to a place where we realize how much we do need God, how wretched, how sinful, how messed up we are, how broken, how hurting we are without God, how empty we are, when we come to that place, now Satan's going to flip it and he's going to tell us the opposite lie and he's going to tell us the lie that you're not good enough for God. Maybe you're here this morning and you believe that lie. Maybe you're here this morning and you've believed the lie that you're not good enough for God, that your past is too bad, that your mistakes are too great, that your sin is too gross, too nasty, that the mistakes of your life have piled up so largely that God could never use you. You're not even good enough for him. Maybe the enemy's telling you that you're not even good enough to receive salvation. Or maybe you're a Christian and you've been saved and you've just heard the lie that you're not good enough to be used by God. We're going to look at a man this morning who had an incredibly awful past. There's many men in Scripture, many women in Scripture who were used despite their incredible past. But the one that I think may have had the greatest awful past, the one who may have had the greatest excuse never to be used by God of all, is who we're going to be looking at today. And his name is Paul. And we find Paul's story first in Acts chapter 9. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, he's not even called Paul. He's called Saul before his conversion. We see his conversion there, but we're going to pick up his story in Acts chapter 26 today. In Acts chapter 26, we see this underdog, this person whose past was so awful, being used by God to appear before one of the kings in the Roman Empire. He's appearing before a man named King Agrippa. Now, the way the Roman Empire worked at this point in time is they had a Caesar, an emperor, who was over the entire empire. But that emperor would appoint kings in different regions who would report to him, and they would be in charge of the local government.
governments. And so King Agrippa is the king over the Palestinian area, the area that includes Israel, where Jesus lived, and where Paul is now at at this point in his story. And so Paul has been arrested for preaching the gospel. Paul has traveled the world as a missionary, going into new communities, starting new churches, telling people the incredible love of Jesus. He has led thousands to Christ, built incredible churches, and the Jews hate him for it. And so they arrest him, and they ask the Roman government to put him to death, just like they did with Jesus. And so Paul was a Roman citizen, so he actually got to appear before the king to make his plea. And so at this point in time, we find Paul's story in Acts 26. Now remember, this is Paul with his life on the line, risking death. And what does he talk to King Agrippa about? Does he tell King Agrippa all the reasons why he doesn't deserve to die? No. Instead, he tells King Agrippa his testimony. And he shares his testimony. Acts 26, starting in verse 4, says, Paul's speaking. He says, the Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. So Paul says, okay, so first of all, I grew up in the church. I mean, I grew up memorizing all the, the verses. I knew all the rules. I knew everything the right way it was supposed to be, or so I thought. And the people that are accusing me now, if they'll be honest with you, they'll tell you the same thing, that this is who I was. I was the strictest of the strict Pharisees. So he goes on with his story. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I was such a Pharisee, and the Pharisees hated Jesus, so I decided I'm going to hate Jesus too. I'm going to shut this Jesus guy down. Verse 10, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so, listen to this, listen to this word that he uses to describe himself. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So Paul says, I had one purpose to my life, and that was to end this Christianity nonsense. I was going to hunt them down. I was going to put Christians in prison. I even voted and helped see them executed, put to death, simply for believing in the name of Jesus. I was obsessed. I even hunted them down beyond Israel. I went to Damascus. I went to other cities, other countries to see them put in prison. This is Paul's testimony about Paul. Verse 12, he says, On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. I want to show you six things as we go through Paul's story this morning that, that apply to our past. If you have a past that the enemy keeps pointing to and saying, you can't be used by God because your past is too bad, or maybe it's not because you have some sin in your past, it's because of some pain in your past. So something that's happened to you, something that was no fault of your own, but something that was done to you. But there's some dark cloud from your past that hangs over you that makes you think that you can't be used by God. I want you to see from Paul's story six things. The first thing that we're going to see this morning is that Paul had a life-altering encounter with God. 
This is a life-changing event. He's on his way to imprison more Christians. He's on his way to help advance the cause for more Christians to die. And side note, this is still happening all over the world right now. It doesn't happen here in America because we are really, really so much more blessed than we realize. But there are Christians in various parts of the world right now in over 50 countries who risk their life to, to say that they identify with Jesus Christ. We got brothers and sisters whose lives are on the line right now, just like Paul's life was, or like Paul was putting people's life on the line 2,000 years ago. So Paul has this life altering encounter. God knocks Paul off his high horse. Paul thought he had it figured out. He thought he knew what was going on. He's riding this horse on his way to Damascus, and God knocks him down. God humbles him. Jesus meets Paul right where he's at. In spite of his sin, in spite of his past, in spite of the fact that Paul hates Jesus, Jesus meets him right where he is. And notice what Jesus says when Paul asks, who are you? Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. He doesn't say, you're messing with my people. He doesn't say, quit messing with those who represent me. He says, you're messing with me. Your hatred is not against my people. It's really with me. You're persecuting me. Paul, by his own admission, was a blasphemer, a murderer, someone obsessed with destroying the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm the one you're messing with. What are you going to do now? I don't care what your past is. I don't care how dark it is, how gloomy it is, how dirty, how shameful, how ugly. You ain't got nothing on Paul. None of us have anything on Paul. Paul did more to destroy the kingdom of God than any of us in this room, probably all of us in this room combined. And yet God chose to use Paul. Despite his nasty past, despite his horrific failures, Jesus met Paul where he was at. He loved him. He altered his life with this encounter. And then he went on to use him in a mighty way. Psalm 34, 8, one of the coolest verses in Scripture, says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. If you never had an encounter with Jesus, if you never had a moment where you met Jesus and everything flipped, can I tell you this morning, this verse in Psalm 34 is an invitation. It's not even a command. It's an invite for you to come and experience the presence of God. Paul had this moment where he met Jesus and everything flipped around. Everything was different from that point forward. He tasted and saw that the Lord was good. And I want you to know that every person, every man, every woman, every individual who has ever taken refuge in Jesus has discovered the same thing, that he is good. If you never had that experience, man, don't leave here today without tasting and seeing that God is good. Paul certainly was blessed for experiencing Jesus, maybe not in the ways that he expected, but he was blessed in incredible ways. The second thing we find from Paul's story is that Paul discovered how awful he was. At the same time, he discovered how big God was. This is what God showed me last night. This changed my whole message. I had everything ready, and at 1.30 in the morning, I'm like lying in bed trying to sleep, and I, all of a sudden, I get this revelation of, of have, how have I never seen this before? And I text message myself, so I'll be able to add it to my notes this morning so I don't forget. So I fall asleep, but here's, here it is. Paul discovered how awful he was at the precise moment. He discovered how big God was. Think about it. Imagine you're Paul for a second. You've leveraged your whole life. We don't know how old he is. He's probably in his 30s, maybe his 40s. You've leveraged your whole life on one concept, that you're going to be the greatest Pharisee you can be. And in order to be the greatest Pharisee there is, you've got to snuff out Christianity. And so you sell out to it. You hunt people down. You kidnap them. You imprison them. You kill them because you believe this is exactly what you're supposed to 
supposed to do with your life. And in one moment, Paul found out he was playing for the wrong team. He found out that everything he lived for was a lie. Everything he had leveraged his life for was a sham. Imagine you're in that moment. How would you feel? I think most of us, our life would crumble right before our eyes. We would be completely broken, completely devastated. I imagine many of us would never be able to get up from that moment. We would be so ashamed. We would be so overwhelmed with guilt that we'd never be useful for anything. How could I have wasted my entire life living a lie? That's not what happens with Paul. See, because even as Paul discovers how terrible he is, even as Paul is first confronted with his incredible sin that he didn't even realize was there, he got a revelation of something else. He got a revelation of something even greater than his wretchedness. He got a revelation of the greatness of God. And the moment that he discovered how terrible he was, he also discovered how amazing God is. And here's what I want you to see today. Here's what this is my belief for someone. What God gave me last night or really this morning, that you've got to hear this. Maybe you need it today. Maybe you're going to need it sometime in the future. But hear me and hear me good. If your past is too bad for you to be used before God, the truth is your God is too small. If your past is too bad, Your God is too small. Because once you realize how big God is, you realize how insignificant you are and how insignificant your past is, how insignificant your failure is. Once you get a revelation of how good and how merciful and how mighty and how powerful and how overwhelmingly great God is, your past doesn't matter anymore. If your past is too bad, your God is too small. And what God has sent me here today to do is not to pat you on the back and say, don't worry about your past. It's not that bad. The truth is, it probably is. My past is awful. My sin is wretched. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not going to sit here and and pat your back and say it's not that bad. What I am going to tell you is he's that good. Even though your past may be awful, even though your pain may be deep, God is bigger and greater than it all. And if he could use the Apostle Paul, if he could use someone as wretched as me, I guarantee you he can use you. If your past is too bad, your God is too small. And all I want to do this morning, if you take anything from this, is I want to increase your revelation of how big our God truly is. He's big enough to use the lowest. He's big enough to use the greatest underdog. He's big enough to even use the most evil among us, as he did with Paul. Your past is too bad. Your God is too small. Paul got a revelation of how nasty he was. But at the same moment, he got a revelation of how incredible God was. And so instead of being devastated, instead of being crumbled, instead of his life falling apart at the revelation that he'd wasted so much time, all of a sudden everything changed for Paul. And he was used in such a massive, incredible way by God. Not because his past wasn't bad, but because his God was great. If your past is too bad, your God is too small. Continuing on in the story, verse 16, Jesus says, Now get up and stand on your feet. Third thing we need to see is Paul had to get up. Jesus didn't let Paul stay down on the ground in condemnation and guilt and shame. He told him to get up. About three years ago, I was playing church softball, and I came in and I, and I made a catch in the outfield, and my knee popped, and I tore my ACL. 
and the ACL is a ligament on the outside of your knee, and, and it popped, and it was nasty. I, I had to have surgery, and what they do is they actually take your patella tendon, which is underneath your kneecap, and, and they cut a snip out of it out of the middle, and they transplant that in to be the new ACL. And there's actually three different ways they can do it. That's the, the hardest of the three, but it's supposed to be the most uh, stable recovery. It's going to hurt you the most, but it's actually going to be the greatest recovery. So that's the option that we went with. And so once I got my ACL surgery, they put me in a brace. And I was in this brace for 10 days, and I couldn't move my leg at all. There was no flexibility. There was no opportunity for me to move it. And what happens in even 10 days' time, you don't realize it, but your muscles begin to atrophy. They begin to shrink. And so once you get out of the brace after 10 days, you have to go to this awesome, fun thing called physical therapy. And I went to physical therapy, and the first thing they did 10 days after my surgery is they had me lie down on a table, and they said, we got to figure out how much motion you have in your knee. Now, my leg has not moved for 10 days. So they take the brace off, they lay me down, they put my foot flat on the table, and then this physical therapist who's like 6'4", 300 pounds, takes my ankle, and he says, you might want to bite your lip. And he begins to shove back on my ankle to see exactly how far my knee could come back, and they're measuring the distance. They're measuring the angle so they know how much work do we have to do over the next few months. Where exactly are we at? And it is the most awful pain you'll ever experience. So over the next few months, going to physical therapy, they taught me all kinds of miserable exercises. They put me in all kinds of awful machines. Uh, They did all kinds of terrible things to me. In fact, I honestly cannot ever remember seeing people scream in pain like I did at physical therapy. I'm talking about old women who had knee replacement surgeries where you think, man, it'd be better for her if she just died right now. Like, and, and she agrees with you. Uh, like, I've seen old women moan in, in ways that, like, they haunt your dreams. Uh, I've seen middle-aged men cry in pain as they try to rehab their shoulder. I've seen teenagers go in there when they find out what they're going to have to do, their eyes get this big. O-M-G. Like, I've seen some, some horrible, awful things. And what is it that would cause somebody to want to do this? What kind of evil, sadistic thing has to be in someone to make them want to do physical therapy? Well, the truth is they're not evil. They're professional healers, and they understand something very important. That if your ligament is going to heal, if it is going to develop, if you're going to be able to use your body again the way it was designed to be used, it's not going to happen by laying there and nurturing your wound. It's going to happen by being stretched by being pushed, by experiencing some pain. And I believe the same thing is true for us as Christians. I believe so many times the enemy comes and he points at us and he tells us about our past. He says, your past is too bad. You're too far gone. God can't use you. Remember that thing that happened to you. You can't move forward. And he paralyzes us from our past where we wallow in our pain, where we look at the thing that has happened to us and what we don't realize is we're not healing because we're not moving. And so Jesus looks at Paul and he says, get up. I know what just happened to you. I know what you just found out. I know how devastating it is, but get up. I've got something for you to accomplish. He says, get up. Stand on your feet. It might hurt. It might be a little shaky. It could be a little difficult. It may be scary, but get your butt. The days are too few. The time is too short. The enemy is too active. The calling is too great on the people of God for us to be stuck 
in our past. It's time for the church to get up. It's time for us to seize the calling that God has placed on us. City Church, it is time to get up. It is time for us as a congregation. It's time for us as individuals to take a stand. It's time for us to take a step, to move forward. It's time for the, the time for us to lick the wounds of the past is gone. The time for us to wallow in the guilt of the past has gone behind us. It's the time for us to sit in shame has ended. It's time to get up. The time to move forward and the call of God is here today. Jesus looks at Paul and I look at you and I say, get up. Don't let the past hold you back any longer. Get up. Moving forward in the story, Jesus says, now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. By the way, that's how I count. I think Paul had something like 15 attempts on his life. Uh, he had two, he was shipwrecked twice. He was stoned multiple times. He was imprisoned. I mean, time and time and time again, people came for Paul, and God rescued him, just like he promised right here. He says, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Fourth thing that we can learn from Paul about moving forward from our past is that Paul knew who Jesus said Paul was. Paul knew who Jesus said that Paul was. When Paul saw Jesus, he got a vision of how Jesus saw Paul. And the reason that Paul could move forward, the reason that Paul did not have to stay devastated in his sin and in his wretchedness and in the revelation that he was a murderer, which would mess most of us up for a long, long time, the reason Paul could move past that is because he discovered what Jesus said about Paul. And if you're going to move forward from your past, if you're going to move forward from your sin, if you're going to allow God to use you despite your pain, you're going to have to get a vision, not of what your past says about you, but what Jesus says about you. You got to be in the word of God. Church, you can't just come on Sunday morning and expect me to be able to feed you enough to carry you through the week. I'm not that good a pastor. I'll never be that good of a pastor. You can pray that I grow and please do pray for me. But I'll never be a good enough pastor that you can come on Sundays and get everything you need for the week. you got to be in the Word of God. you got to see what God has to say about you for yourself. you got to feed yourself, give yourself the strength that only comes from being in His Word. And once Paul got a revelation of his, God's Word about Paul, it changed everything. Paul's past didn't matter. The labels of Paul's family, of Paul's friends, of everybody he'd ever known, of everybody he'd ever worked with, of everything he'd ever tried to accomplish, all of those things didn't matter to Paul because Paul knew who Jesus said Paul was. And if you want to move forward from the past, if you want to move forward from sin and shame, you must get a revelation of what God says about you. And you've got to start to believe it. You've got to start to trust what God says more than what your past says, more than what your friends say, more than what your family says, more than what your own head says about you. Find out what God says and begin to believe it. The next thing we see... And the story comes again from verse 16. It says, get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Fifth thing we learn is that Paul was appointed and Paul was chosen. God had a plan for Paul, a very unique plan, a very unusual plan, a plan that probably none of us in this room have the same type of a plan. Probably none of us are going to travel the way that Paul did. Probably none of us are going to plant as many churches as Paul planted. Probably, perhaps, 
none of us will win as many people to Jesus as Paul did. Hopefully none of us will have 15 times where people try to kill us for talking about Jesus. Most of us probably don't have the plan that Paul had for our life, but there's a plan for you. You are appointed. You are chosen. This was not an exclusive thing for Paul. All of us are appointed and chosen to be used by God, and we've all got a past. We've all got junk that we've got to move through and move beyond in order to accomplish it. But church, God has appointed you. God has called you. God has chosen you for something great, for something big, for his kingdom. We've got to believe that he's done that. And the last thing I want us to see as we wrap up our message this morning, as you can see, we're going to be taking communion here in just a few moments. But Paul's pain... Paul's past became Paul's platform. Paul's pain, Paul's past became Paul's platform. You see, Paul did not turn and run from his past. Paul did not begin to deny his past. He didn't try to minimize his past. He didn't try to pretend that it never happened. Paul embraced his past because he knew that it became his platform. It was what allowed him to be used by God. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what your junk is. I don't know what your failure is. But instead of, of pretending it's not there, instead of trying to, to override it, instead of trying to, to erase it from history, I would encourage you to embrace that past, embrace that pain, and let God make it into your platform, just like Paul did. Paul changed the world, not in spite of his past. I believe Paul changed the world because of his past, because of who Paul had been because of the sin Paul had committed, because of the awful, atrocious things that had gone down in Paul's life, God said, you're the one that I'm going to use to change the world. I don't know what your pain is. I don't know what your past is, but the truth is all of us have one. Some of us might be more dark. Some might be more shameful, maybe more embarrassing. Maybe for you it's more just painful. You've been abused. You've been mistreated. I don't know what your past looks like, but I don't need to know. To tell you this, God wants to use it. God wants to use your past. He doesn't want to use you and pretend your past doesn't exist. He wants to use you because of your past, because of your sin, because of your failure, because of your pain. He wants to grab a hold of you right where you're at and tell you to get up, tell you I've got something to use you for. He wants to use your pain and your past as your platform. Remember this, church. If your past is too big, your God is too small. And if you want God to use you, the greatest way that that will ever happen is by getting a greater revelation of how big and mighty and glorious and beautiful he is. Paul had a life-altering experience when he discovered how terrible he was and how amazing God was. And I believe that God wants to use you and your pain and your past for his glory to impact others around you, to impact a community, a family, a workplace, a neighborhood, a school. God wants to use you in whatever situation he's placed you in, but he'll never be able to use you if you lie in your past. Get up and allow God to do something great through you. No more underdog excuses. No more believe in the lie of the enemy. We're going to believe what God says, not what Satan says. Amen.